Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Here's a thought experiment. How would you handle it if you got a terrible diagnosis? Every once in a while, I muster the strength to think about this, and I find that my mind just revolts. I just don't want to think about this. Of course, many of us have no choice, and that's the situation my guest today was in. At a very young age, she got gravely ill and and really had to figure out how to have a sense of agency when so much was completely out of her control and how to stay awake and present when her life was hanging in the balance. There's a quote she likes from the great writer Miguel Cervantes, before death, it's all life. My guest's name is Suleika Jawad. She's a journalist, author, speaker, cancer survivor. She's the author of a book called Between Two Kingdoms, A Memoir of a Life Interrupted, and the creator of Life Interrupted, the Emmy Award-winning New York Times column and video series, which she created from her hospital bed. In this conversation, we talk about Suleika's journey from being diagnosed with leukemia as a young adult to her recovery today, managing her emotions in excruciating situations, handling an ocean of uncertainty, feeding the need for creativity and productivity when the body is in mutiny mode, and the immense value of strategically going easy on yourself, especially if you are an ambitious person. We also talk about what she believes is a porous line between sickness and health and her rather astute critiques of what she calls the wellness industrial complex. Some exciting news. Earlier this year, we ran a survey of our listeners. Thousands of you answered a whole series of questions about your experiences with this show. And uh, we, in turn, listened to you. Uh, It turns out one of the things you really don't like is the ads on this show. We'll be right in the middle of talking about the pernicious impacts of mass media or the importance of self-compassion or how to achieve a blissful state of attention and focus. And then a jarring voice elbows its way in and tries to convince you to watch a boxing match or try a new diet or buy a car. So we've heard you on this and we're going to try something new. This show, the 10% Happier Podcast, is now available ad-free inside our companion meditation app, which is also called 10% Happier. So you can listen to all of our episodes without ads inside the app when you subscribe. Relatable wisdom sans distractions. So to get started, download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps and then open up the app and tap on the podcasts tab at the bottom of your screen. And good news, as promised, this is now available on both iOS and Android. Okay, that said, that item of business out of the way, let's dive in now with Suleika Jawad. Suleika Jawad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Pleasure. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your your backstory. You got sick pretty young. Um, can you tell me when you, you first learned that you, that you were ill? Mm. So about a year after graduating from college, I was diagnosed with leukemia. Um, But looking back, I'd been sick for a long time. It had started with a mysterious itch my senior year of college and and fatigue. But I think like a lot of, you know, 
people in their early 20s, I had this notion that youth and health are supposed to go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went to see a, a number of different doctors who, you know, sent me home with antibiotics or told me to get some rest. I was hospitalized for a week and ultimately released with something called burnout syndrome. So all this to say that by the time I got my actual diagnosis, I'd spent the better part of a year feeling like I was losing my mind mm. um, and, and knowing that something was wrong and not necessarily being or feeling taken seriously uh, by the doctors I was seeing, but also not taking myself seriously. And so in a strange, perverse way, it was a relief to get a cancer diagnosis. Did they give you a sense of whether they thought you were going to make it? They told me point blank that I had about a 35% chance of long-term survival. And, you know, that kind of prognosis, I think, is impossible to wrap your head around. But certainly, you know, at 22, I hadn't yet confronted or, or given much thought to uh, my mortality. And so I, I remember experiencing that prognosis like a kind of slap. Hmm. Did you start contemplating your mortality at that moment? And if so, you know, what was that? Pro what did that look like internally for you? I think like a, a lot of patients in those first couple of days or weeks, there was so much adrenaline. You know, I felt almost super charged by, by this need to keep it together, to keep it together for my parents, to learn all of the information I needed to learn. There's such a steep learning curve when you get a diagnosis like this. Um, and I found myself wishing that I'd paid better attention in my high school science classes, but everything was overwhelming. And when I first entered the hospital that summer, I remember packing a suitcase full of books and telling myself that I was going to make the most of what I imagined to be a summer of illness, a short sojourn in the kingdom of the sick, and that I was going to read all the things I hadn't had a chance to read, that this was somehow going to be a restful experience. And of course, you know, very quickly into that hospital stay, uh, whatever assumptions or, or preconceptions I had about how my illness was going to go were upended. Um, and at the end of that summer, I had yet to read a single one of those books. And I learned that the standard chemotherapy treatments weren't working for me. In fact, my leukemia had become much more aggressive. Um, and at that point, my only option was an experimental clinical trial. And I think that's when it hit me. The realization, not just that I was sick and that I could no longer recognize the person staring back at me in the mirror. I'd lost all my hair and my eyebrows and my eyelashes, but that, you know, in cases like mine, medicine was more of an art than a science. So the art in this case involved a uh, an experimental treatment. How did that go? Uh, not well <laughs> um, in terms of the day-to-day -day experience of it. It was a really physically challenging eight-month uh, course of treatment, and I ended up spending about 
for those months in isolation in the hospital, fighting off every possible complication um, that I could have. And I think it was also, uh, you know, because of, of the length of the trial and the uncertainty of it, um, it was my first indication that cancer was going to be as much of a physical challenge for me as an emotional challenge. Um, you know, they say you can survive anything as long as you can see the horizon or an end date in sight. And I think what was most challenging was this sense of, of constantly moving goalposts and of not quite being sure what was going to be on the other side of that, you know, very, very literal trial. And what that ended up looking like for me was life-saving bone marrow transplant with my brother Adam as my donor, and then two more years of chemotherapy. But in all of this and, and what ended up being nearly four years, I think that's the thing that I kept coming back to and kept being surprised by again and again, uh, was that this was as much a physically grueling experience as it was an incredibly psychologically trying one. So how did you manage your emotions? How did you tend to your psychology while in this um, awful, excruciating situation? Mm. You know, I was someone who'd always been a, a high achiever before my diagnosis. I, you know, pulled countless all-nighters to get into the best possible school I could go to and and to get a scholarship to attend. And I really felt like I, up until, you know, my diagnosis had spent my 22 years on the planet preparing for a life. And so in that first year, I felt, you know, a, a couple of, of things. Uh, the first, strangely, was a sense of relief uh, to no longer have to or, or be able to participate in, in the kind of anxiety of accomplishment. Suddenly, the stakes were dramatically low. You know, no, I couldn't work. I couldn't study. My parents, you know, were over the moon if I walked one block around the house. Uh, for the first time in my life, I had very few expectations. But the double-edged sword of that was feeling a sense of deep frustration and anger at this feeling that my life was stuck, that my life felt over before it had really begun. And so the thing that ultimately helped me after the first couple of months of trying to set the world record for the number of Grey's Anatomy episodes watched consecutively, because <laughs> that's all I did for those first couple of months, uh, was returning to the practice I'd always uh, turned to in my most difficult passages, and that was journaling. And I began keeping this journal every single day, and it turned into a kind of reporter's notebook. Uh, I would jot down, you know, overheard snippets of conversations between the nurses. I would write about the new patients I was befriending. I would write about all the aspects of the illness experience that felt taboo and impossible to talk about. I wrote about infertility. I wrote about, you know, what it was like to fall in love while falling sick. I wrote about all of it. And something about that act of putting pen to paper uh, in the privacy of a notebook gave me a sense of narrative control 
at a time in my life where I'd had to cede so much control to others, to my disease, to my medical team, to, you know, forces beyond my comprehension. I want to talk about the journaling in a second and what that led to, but you mentioned there sort of this interesting and maybe seemingly contradictory pair of responses, relief and anger at the stuckness. Um, Just dwell for a second on the relief. Mm -hmm. When you talked about that, this having spent 22 years, I believe you used the phrase, preparing for life. It just, it reminded me of a comment I once heard from a young man who was in college at the time. He was into meditation and he was saying that when he got into meditation, he realized that much of his life had been a pregame and that he was never awake for the whole game, which was always right now. Anyway, does that resonate with you? It absolutely resonates. And, you know, I think now more than ever, for for college students, for high school students, you know, in this age of highly competitive college admissions and, and social media, there's so much pressure to make yourself into the smartest, most prolific, most productive, shiniest version of yourself. Um, and so, yeah, in that sense, it did feel like a pregame. I I felt like I was constantly hustling and constantly working and constantly striving. And so to have this thing happen that I hadn't chosen, but that hit the pause button on everything, um, you know, and when I got my diagnosis, I lost my job. uh, I lost my apartment. I was living abroad in Paris and and working as a paralegal. Um, I lost my independence and, and suddenly found myself back home in upstate New York, in my childhood bedroom, um, which was obviously not the plan, not my my one-year plan, my five-year plan, or my 10-year plan for that matter. But, but in a way, to have um, an element of, of agency or choice removed for the first time in my life did feel like a, a kind of forced exit from the pregame. And I did have this sense that you know, pretty much right away with my diagnosis, my relationship to time changed. I couldn't think about the past because it represented, you know, a life that I was no longer living. I couldn't think about the future because when mortality hangs in the balance, the future can feel like a very scary place because you don't know if you're going to exist in the future. And so in this strange way, I felt pinned to the present um, I felt hyper-present for the first time in my life. Into the present. I like that. Um, you did have some agency, of course, and you you made a really not only smart, but I think wise decision to, to, to revert to this practice of journaling. Just by way of context, I want to say something the listeners might not know, which is that you had the career you you may have been working as a paralegal but in paris but you you had the career ambition of becoming a war correspondent um i know i know a little bit about that and so personally um so i'm just interested to hear about that before we dive into what you did with the journaling while you, while you were sick mm-hmm. How, why 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 on earth would anybody want to be a war correspondent <laughs> it's an excellent question one that i suspect you uh, have your own answers to 
I was born in New York City. Uh, both my parents are immigrants. My dad is from Tunisia, North Africa. And so I'd always had uh, a great interest in, in North Africa and the Middle East. I'd lived there as a kid. I'd studied abroad there. I majored in Near Eastern studies. But I'd also had this, this love of writing. And, you know, I, I felt this sense of pressure to choose a more pragmatic financially viable route. And so the idea of like graduating college and doing an unpaid internship at a magazine or something like that did not feel like an option for me. But journalism did feel like a career, not necessarily, a, you know, a financially lucrative career, but something that was viable and that had structure. And so that's what I set out to do. And right before my diagnosis, I got what I thought was going to be my first, you know, small break, which was an opportunity to interview for a position as a stringer in Tunisia, uh, right in the early weeks of what was later known as the Arab Spring. And it was one of those moments when you're in your early 20s and you're not quite sure who you are or what you're doing, but you see a path towards a, a vocation that feels like something that somehow makes sense or, or that aligns with your interests and who you are. And so this notion of becoming a foreign correspondent or a war correspondent um, was very much that for me. Although, of course, I never got to do that. I never made it to my second round of interviews. And in a strange way, I found myself in a very different kind of conflict zone. Yeah. You you are a war correspondent. Just they're firing uh, experimental treatments at you, not bullets. Um, let's talk about that. You launched a project called Life Interrupted. How did it come about and what was it? So, you know, as I mentioned, that first year of treatment, I, I really went into a deep retreat. Um, I was writing compulsively, some might say obsessively, in the privacy of my journal. But I, I really, you know, didn't have any sort of career aspirations. It seemed, you know, impossible to imagine what kind of job I could hold or, or what kind of career I could create for myself from the confines of a hospital bed. But I ended up reading uh, a lot about Frida Kahlo and, and doing a lot of research on our long lineage of bedridden artists and writers and thinkers. People like Virginia Woolf, who had managed to take illness in whatever shape or form it arrived to them and to transform it into some kind of creative grist or something maybe even useful to others. And so as you know, I, I learned more about these different people, I, I began to think of what I could do from the confines of my bed, my hospital bed. Um, and in leafing through my journal, I realized I had quite a bit of source material. And so like the good millennial that I am, uh, I decided to start a blog, which I took very seriously. And I, you know, gave myself deadlines. I held myself to a high standard, but really expected nothing to come of it. You know, nurses would come to my hospital room and I'd say, can you come back in a couple of hours? I have a deadline. 
Uh, but of course, these were entirely self-imposed and my readership at that point uh, was likely going to consist of my parents and maybe <laughs> my grandmother. Uh, but it felt really good to have a job to do other than simply being a patient. And, and it was that that sense of, of agency that I was finding in, in writing and editing and exercising those muscles that I hadn't felt in a long time. And shortly after my blog launched, I was approached by an editor at the New York Times who asked me if I might want to write an essay. And I proposed instead that I write a weekly column that I wanted to report on uh, from my hospital bed. And in addition to that, I pitched a video series to go with it. That was pretty gutsy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they, they, they reach out and say, hey, well, you know, this is this is an interesting little project you got going here. We should write us a, 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 a um, an essay. And you're like, actually, you know, let me take over a chunk of the most venerable newspaper on earth and, <laughs> and populate that. I love well, it. I say this with admiration. Well, and I should say, I'm not a presumptuous person. And even in that moment, I knew it was wildly presumptuous of me to pitch this. But there was something about cancer that had made me brazen. Uh, I kept returning to four simple words, no time to waste. Yeah. Um, and that's what it felt like for me. I didn't have you know time to work as a fact checker or to slowly make my way. I was staring down this bone marrow transplant and I felt a sense of urgency to do the things I wanted to do now. I just want to dwell on that for a second because it's interesting that you you put it in the negative, like the being presumptuous. And and this may not be the case with you, but I'll just say from my own personal experience, one of the things I like to do is talk to people about their careers. And so many of the people I have these kind of conversations, you could even call them like mentoring conversations, are women. And I notice this uh, sheepishness about asserting themselves or being ambitious. You know, I see it with my wife who mm -hmm. is, uh, who's struggled a lot with imposter syndrome. I'm not speaking out of school here. She's spoken about this publicly. Mm -hmm. And I, I almost never, I can't, I'm searching my mind to think if I can come up with a time where I've heard this from a male mm -hmm. and I can't right now come up with one. And so I spend a lot of my time when I'm having mentoring conversations, like cajoling people into being more obnoxious. Yeah. But there I go with the pejorative, you know, like, but, or presumptuousness, <laughs> but what I, I say it facetiously, but I, I, I applaud you for doing that. I think that was, that was awesome that you did that. And if there are people out there who may fall prey to the same sort of psychology that you may have fallen prey to, and I don't really know, I'm just drawing mm. conclusions based on your words, then I would say that you should look at what Suleika did and, and go for it. It's, you know, it's interesting. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I've been recently observing um, the number of thank yous and apologies and exclamation marks in my own email correspondence mm -hmm. and, and the email correspondence from other women I receive. And, and I can't think of a single man that I've corresponded with who uh, expresses gratitude and a remorse as, uh, um, with frequent uses of exclamation marks in the same way women do. And I do think there's this sense, whether you personally believe it or it's a kind of social performance that you do in conversations where you have to mitigate as a woman any sense of being too 
ambitious and and brazen. I, you know, that's something I, I've had to do a lot of work around. And and I've done a deep dive into, into my imposter syndrome over the last decade. And it's something that's a kind of endless work for me. But I do think, you know, especially as writers, the language we use matters. The language we use to describe our career trajectories, to describe the decisions we make matters. And thank you for, yeah, for, for noting that. I've had to really sort of wake up to it because my mom was an unremitting ass kicker who, um, you know, became one of the first women to become a full professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and was just a, just a complete badass. But not everybody's like that. And my mom was able to, I think, resist some of the more noxious messages from the larger culture. Um, along those lines, a previous guest on the show, somebody I really admire named Alicia Menendez. She's a journalist currently with uh, MSNBC. She, uh, wrote a book called The Likeability Trap, uh, where she talks mm. about a lot of the issues you're you're talking about there, just so just as a side note. Mm. In any event, um, you succeeded with your quote unquote presumptuous pitch. And so tell us a little bit more about what came about as a result of it. Mm. I remember, you know, as I was having this conversation, I was actually waiting for a biopsy result. And I was my mom was sitting next to me and I was in this hospital gown. And I turned to her and I, as soon as I hung up the phone, I jumped up and down and I screamed (laughs) and then I burst into tears (laughs) because of course I felt tremendous excitement. I'd never been published before. I'd never had a byline. So this is a, a very big deal to me, but I also had this, you know, dual realization of, oh, now I actually have to figure out how to do this. And the next eight weeks leading up to my bone marrow transplant, I think I pre-wrote something like 12 or 13 columns, knowing that I wasn't going to be well enough to maintain that weekly pace once I started the bone marrow transplant process. But more than that, I, I was learning how to write a column. I'd never done anything like that. But something about those short, you know, 800-word installments worked for where I was at. I had very limited energy And so I wrote in 10-minute bursts, staggered throughout the day, entirely from bed. And without, you know, thinking about it in these terms, I was really having not just to confront my limitations and to accept them, but to find workarounds. And so in this sense, survival and, and, and the work that I was doing became its own kind of creative act. And the two felt very much intertwined. So the column in the video series, which was called Life Interrupted, launched my first week in the bone marrow transplant unit. And it was this confluence of both my my biggest dream and, and my biggest nightmare and fear. And it was very disorienting. But what I hadn't really thought about, because just the the act of physically writing these columns, of having to use my brain in this new way, was all I was focused on was what was going to happen after. And like I mentioned, the future had become a scary place. So I wasn't really thinking about what would come of these dual experiences But when the column launched, I remember waking up the next morning to hundreds of notes from readers around the world 
who, you know, some had been sick, some had had cancer, but many of them were having all kinds of life interruptions. And for me, after a year of existing in in total isolation, you know, shuttling between the hospital and, and my childhood bedroom to feel that sense of connection, to feel a kind of conduit to the world outside my window was no small gift. So what kind of subjects were you covering in the column? I wrote about all the topics that I found impossible to discuss with my loved ones. I wrote about sexual health. I wrote about fear. I wrote about guilt. I wrote about anger. But what I was really interested in doing was reporting on this experience in real time. Because I think, you know, there are so many books that are told from the perspective of someone who has survived a traumatic event that are many years out. But when you're in the trenches of whatever that experience is, when you don't know how your story is going to end, that's a very different orientation and experience. And I wanted to capture that uncertainty. I wanted to write about the things that if I did survive, I would hopefully have, you know, some helpful amnesia that that would make it such that I wouldn't, you know, experience them in the same kind of visceral way. But I, I really, I think, have, have been most interested in my career in those kinds of in-between places and those states or topics that elude easy categorization where you're kind of stuck in a liminal state, especially after my transplant, uh, you know, no longer had leukemia, but was at a very high risk of relapse. I was still doing seven days of chemotherapy every three weeks. I was still very much in a, a place of isolation. My immune system had been completely obliterated by my treatment. So I wasn't allowed to go out in public. And if I did, I had to wear a face mask and gloves, which of course is now a familiar experience for all of us. But I also felt in a, a kind of in-betweenness that I think a lot of young adults feel where you're you're not a kid, but you're not a fully formed adult yet as much as you may want to be. I had the thought while you were listening to you talk about sort of liminal spaces in betweenness. Would it be fair to say that actually looked at from a certain angle, all of life is in, in between us? Yes, and you're right. We all exist in a liminal space. Um, we're all kind of terminal patients who are here on this earth for a finite uh, period of time. The, the epigraph in my book is from Miguel Cervantes, and it's one of my all-time favorite lines. Miguel Cervantes wrote, until death, it is all life. And so in that sense, you know, we're, we're all in an in-between place. And as much as we like to think of sickness and health or as binary, um, most of us, depending on the day, exist somewhere along that spectrum. Uh, and, and the border between those two realms is very porous something that we've all had to reckon with in the last year with COVID of just how tenuous our, our, our lives are. And yet we are, as the Buddhist master Pema Chodron has said, we are all programmed for denial. 
there's something about the human condition that doesn't quite let us take in our mortality. I often compare it to like trying to get one of my cats to look in the mirror. You know, they just won't <laughs> do it, you know, or trying to put two magnets together. They won't quite touch. And I don't, you know, qu I don't quite know why it is. Uh, and there are lots of practices in Buddhism and, and the, the Catholic tradition is memento mori where you carry around like a stone in your mm -hmm. pocket and touch it and to remind yourself you're going to die. And and so you, one can get better at this, but it, it requires a lot of work. Have you, now that you are out of that situation, we should talk about how that situation resolved, your health, your health travails, but do, do you find yourself forgetting once in a while that uh, before death, it's all life? Mm, yeah, I forget all the time. I have moments like this morning where I knew we were going to have this conversation and I was having a bad hair day <laughs> and I rushed and took a shower and then I felt totally ridiculous because a couple of years ago I had no mm -hmm. hair. And so to be worried about a bad hair day, especially on a podcast, <laughs> uh, is, you know, a level of absurdity that I'm fully aware of. But I also think that there's there's good reason uh, for why, you know, we we can't have that heightened awareness of our mortality. If we were all to live every day as if it were our last, we'd go bankrupt and probably make terrible decisions and the world would likely implode. And so I've come to delight in those moments of forgetfulness um, because they feel like a real marker of, of progress and, and healing for me. The flip side of that is that, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I'll often remind myself of when I was at my sickest and, and my energy was so limited that I could do about three things every day. I could answer an email. I could watch a movie. I could see a friend, but I really had only enough energy to do three things, three simple things. And now when I go into my day, I, I use that as a kind of thought exercise for myself of if I could only do three things today, what are the things that would feel most important, most rewarding, most nourishing? And of course, you know, I have the privilege now of having more energy and, and being able to do more than that, but it's been a useful, clarifying exercise for myself. And I think it does take deliberation and, and deliberate, intentional practices in order to get this into your molecules, This to strike this balance that you were describing between being aware of our own finitude and also Ha, you know, enjoying the luxury of forgetting it. Um, yeah. Because we, I, because I got us ahead of ourselves um, in the narrative. Can you just say? <laughs> so you, you at some point, as I understand it, you were told you're cured. Am I am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. So after about four years, I was told I was done with treatment. I had my port removed, uh, which is this little device implanted beneath the surface of my skin through which I got 
you know, everything from chemotherapy to stem cells and blood transfusions over the years. Um, and as the surgeon joked right before he removed it, he said, congratulations, you're being deported. <laughs> uh, which, of course, was, you know, a problematic pun, yes. but on some level, yes. it also felt very apt. I had this sense of, I'm finally done and I'm going to return to the kingdom of the well. But that didn't happen. Uh, as I very quickly realized a cure is not where the hard work of healing ends. In a lot of ways, it's where it begins. So when we talk about that that in-between place, that's very much where I found myself. On paper, I was better, I was cured, but off paper, I was reeling from you know the wreckage of those four years of treatment on my body, on my mind. I was grappling with PTSD, which wasn't something that I was aware of. And all the while I felt this, you know, enormous amount of pressure to, of course, be grateful to be alive, but somehow to, you know, follow that that hero's journey that's often projected onto survivors, where you, you know, emerge better and braver and stronger and wiser for what you've struggled and suffered through. But that, that wasn't what it felt like for me. You know, that was probably the most lost I've ever felt mm. in my life. I was struggling with depression and anxiety and, and PTSD and very much wanting to find my footing among the living again, but having no idea how to go about doing that. I think you were right about considering yourself, and this, this will be a, a revival of a term we used earlier, you consider yourself an imposter in the world of the living. Yes. And in this strange way, you know, I, I found myself missing the hospital. Hmm. I found myself almost wishing that I could get sick again, not because I actually wanted to have cancer, but because I, I understood the world of the hospital. I knew how to navigate it. I, I belonged there. I had befriended, you know, so many patients. Um, it was the outside world that had grown foreign and frightening to me. Um, and I very much felt like an imposter among the living. So how did you, you're, you're quote unquote cured from leukemia, but you're suffering with anxiety, depression, PTSD. How did you, what kind of treatment did you seek out? I didn't seek out any treatment in large part because no one really prepared me for the challenges of survivorship. And so for a long time, I didn't understand what was wrong with me. You know, I could see that I had certain physical long-term side effects from my treatment. And so I would go to my oncologists or my medical team and talk to them about that. But as far as the invisible imprints of illness, the grief and the, the heartbreak and, and the psychological imprints of that experience, I, I didn't have an understanding of where to turn to and who to seek guidance from. And so what I ended up doing was basically creating a kind of ritual for myself. Um, you know, we have these rites of passages, these ritualized healing ceremonies that help us through moments of transition. Um, we have funerals and weddings. We have baby showers. 
we have bar mitzvahs and all these ceremonies allow us to bridge that distance between no longer and not yet. Uh, but for me, I, I didn't have a kind of rite of passage to help ease my way back to the kingdom of the well. And so what I ended up doing was creating one for myself. And I learned how to drive and decided to leave home for a couple of months. And I borrowed a friend's car, rented out my apartment, and embarked on a solo 15,000-mile road trip around the United States um, where I went and, and sought out some of the different people who'd written me letters in response to the column over the years about their own moments of reckoning, their own moments of being stuck in that liminal in-between place. And that was ultimately what allowed me to begin even just confronting what it was that I was experiencing and confronting the very real privileges, but also the very deep challenges of surviving something that was thought to be unsurvivable. How did it help you confront it? I think there's, you know, a, a kind of omerta of censorship around survivorship. Uh, whether you're, you know, a veteran returning from war, there's, again, like I said, the sense that you somehow are one of the lucky ones. And, and while that might be true, it, I think, can also uh, make it difficult to talk about the physical and psychological toll of surviving a trauma. And so to have people who had lived some version or some degree of the same thing I was living and to be able to have frank conversations was a new experience for me. And, you know, I called the different individuals I, I met my road guardians because they very much felt that way to me. They were a kind of breadcrumb trail through that wilderness of survivorship. And now you've turned this into a book. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the book is called Between Two Kingdoms. It's my first book. It's a memoir, and it, it's really about the the imprints of a, a trauma on, on a life and on our relationships and, and that road trip that I ended up embarking on to visit these different strangers. Much more of my conversation with Suleika Jawad right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, 
Families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. What would you say are the are the most important takeaways for you from from all of this, the the illness, the road trip, all of it? Mm. I'm reminded of this man I met on the road, this guy named Rich, and he said something to me that, you know, in the moment and, and since then is something I, I think about a lot. He said, whenever we travel, we actually take three trips. There's the trip of packing and preparation and excited anticipation. There's the trip that you're actually on, which for me was this road trip. And then there's the trip that you remember. But the key is to stay present in whatever trip you're on without allowing your thoughts to time travel. And so I think that is one of the biggest lessons that I, I grappled with both in illness and, and its aftermath and that I grapple with in this book, which is the question of how we learn to swim in an ocean of uncertainty, which of course we're, we're all doing all the time. But in these moments when, when your life is upended, you can feel subsumed by that sense of uncertainty. And so that was my work in, in writing this book. That's my my constant work, is learning to swim in that ocean of not knowing. Well, that, that sounds pretty Buddhist. <laughs> and it sounds like uh, what we've all been dealing with in living through a pandemic. You know, we, especially at the beginning, we had no idea where this thing was going to go. And now, I mean, that's still true, but really true at the beginning. And it's just a reminder that the the ground was never stable under our feet, or as mm-hmm. my meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein likes to say, very simply, anything can happen at any time. Yeah, and and you know, once we've lived through something like that, and I, and I write this in the book, you know, once the ceiling caves in on you, you no longer assume structural stability. You have to learn to live along fault lines. Mm-hmm. In a way, you know, my my twenties were a kind of PhD course and learning to live along fault lines. But more than that, I think, you know, in these these moments of heightened uncertainty or isolation, we have the the power to kind of transmute whatever that circumstance is into something, into a kind of creative solitude or into a sense of connection. And so for me, that seeking out that kind of creative solitude, seeking out those unlikely connections across the globe has been my way of of learning to live along those fault lines. So the punchline or a punchline here is, and I don't mean to, to be glib, uh, is we're in this situation, we're all on this bus, <laughs> we may run out of road at any moment, the and that's scary and it's non-negotiable it sounds like the 
best coping mechanism is to make friends with the other people on the bus? To make friends with the other people on the bus and to make friends with yourself through some kind of creative outlet. And you don't have to be a writer. You don't have to be an artist. But to find some mode of expression where you can give ink to the things that feel indescribable or uncontainable. In terms of the human connections you made on your on your road trip, just let me ask about one person. Apparently, you met a death row inmate in Texas. Is that am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. He was a young man by the name of Quinn Jones, or Little GQ, as he's called in the book. And he was someone who'd never been sick before. But I had written this column about what I described as my incanceration, mm-hmm. reflecting on on the parallels and the language we use around. Uh, sentencing and also diagnoses. And and someone had sent him this column and he wrote me a, a beautiful letter reflecting on our shared experiences of isolation and facing mortality. And we struck up a correspondence. And so he was probably one of the most powerful stops on that road trip. But I think it is very much someone who's done those two things that we're talking about now. He spent, you know, more than half his life in solitary confinement on death row, reckoning with what he'd done and who he'd been and doing that through learning how to write and, and, and more than that, letter writing and really sharing that vulnerability with others, most of them complete strangers. And I think that's been my experience that was certainly Quinn's experience, which is that when you dare to write or to share vulnerably, there's a kind of reverberation that happens where vulnerability begets vulnerability begets vulnerability. And so even if you're someone on solitary confinement on death row or someone in isolation in a hospital room, as I was, there are these opportunities for for connection. I want to put a fine point on that because there's a way in which terms like connection and vulnerability can slide by people because, it, it you know, they're treading in the area of cliche, uh, even though, uh, you know, the, the frustrating thing about cliches is that they become cliches because they're true. But the, the mm-hmm. challenge is to sort of revivify the cliche by coming up with n- new ways to talk about it. And so I just want to make sure that doesn't slide by people. The 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 point I think you're making, especially with the vulnerability begets vulnerability begets vulnerability, is that if you take a risk and tell somebody what's going on for you in a real way, that is likely to encourage them to reciprocate and on and on. And then we're dropping our masks, we're dropping our personas, we're dropping our curated Instagram profiles and actually getting to know one another. And therefore, we're all getting more comfortable on the bus, which, again, is on a road that uh, is bumpy at best. Am I restating your thesis with some uh, faithfulness? You are. Thank you. How are you doing now? I'm doing really well. I'm nine years out from my bone marrow transplant. In a strange way, I think, during the pandemic, felt a sense of of return to a kind of familiar state. And so I've had to be, you know, extra careful because of my immune system. But I've also 
delighted in in my world quieting and, and slowing down a little bit in this last year. And so now as as the world opens back up and as we all are in this process of reentry, I'm being reminded daily of you know how how similar in a lot of ways it feels uh, to how it felt when I was tasked with a very different kind of reentry um, all those years ago. I do want to go back to something you said before about back to the bus analogy. It's not only making friends with people on the bus, it's also making friends with yourself. What have you learned about that? Because you, you've talked about not recognizing yourself in the mirror, having lost your hair and your eyebrows. It's got to be hard for somebody in, who's a kid, really, in your 20s. And, you know, really getting in touch with the unreliability of your own body, the fallibility of your own body. I'd love to just hear you free associate a little bit about what you've learned on having a relationship to yourself, given all of this. Mm, I think illness for me was an experience of having all the artifice stripped away, be it hair or, or certain values or even people in my life. And what was left at the end of, of that process were the raw facts of who I was, even if I didn't necessarily from the outside look the same way I had, uh, but also what felt most meaningful to me. And I'm kind of fascinated by how these moments of a heightened awareness of our mortality unveil and, and reveal our most primal, savage selves. And so I, I learned a lot about myself in you know, those years of illness in a way that I think would have probably taken a very long time for pre-diagnosis 22-year-old me uh, to accrue. And so in a way, if illness was an experiencing of uh, an experience of unveiling of losing my hair of losing my job of losing all these kind of outside markers of who i was and and really going beneath that this current phase of my life has been trying to live into the possibilities of that knowledge that i acquired can you say more about exactly what you mean by that living into the possibility of the knowledge you required what does that look like in in a day-to-day life? Mm. One of the the questions I, I always returned to when I was at my sickest was, if I survive this, it has to be for something. It has to be to live some, you know, kind of meaningful, happy life. Otherwise, what's the point of, of going through all this? And so the answer to, to how to go about that has looked very different over the years. But I think that the big thing that I come back to is a sense of wanting to keep that artifice at bay and of not letting myself get too tangled up or wrapped up in these kind of outside markers of of who I am and and to stay in that kind of tender, stripped-down place um, and to stay connected to that. But I think, you know, people always say that when they have near-death experiences, they have epiphanies about what they'd like to change and who they'd want to be. So I think the simplest way to say what I'm saying is that 
you know, there's the epiphany and then there's the application yes. of the epiphany yes. onto your life. Now that's so interesting. I mean, I've experienced that on meditation retreats where I have all sorts of epiphanies and I go back and I revert to, you know, being a schmuck in right. countless ways. So well, I'm <laughs> curious, what are the biggest obstacles for you between the epiphany and the application of the epiphany? Oh, God, that's a very good question. Instagram? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, I think... Um, the irony here is we started this conversation by by talking about that anxiety of accomplishment and, and that kind of culture of constant hustling and striving. And so I think, um, you know, something that I have been working on a lot in this last year is having more ease in my days and, and not pushing and striving as much in part because I can't, you know, I, I pay for it physically but I pay for it in other ways. And so I think in some ways, yeah, Instagram is one of the impediments, that kind of culture of constant comparison, whether it's to you know other people or, or past versions of ourselves and these kind of constructed standards that, that we set for ourselves that, that make it difficult to slow down and to actually take a pulse check and to, yeah, figure out not just where you're going, but maybe more importantly, why. Kind of la last question for me, while, we, while we're being critical of Instagram, let me just push you to be, to, to explore another critique. I believe in your book, you explore kind of some critiques of the wellness or self-care industry. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. I have a, you know, a very complicated relationship to the wellness industrial complex, I imagine, like a lot of cancer patients do. And the thing that shocked me pretty much the day I received my diagnosis was the amount of unsolicited medical advice I received about how to cure my leukemia with everything from juice cleanses to apricot seeds to coffee enemas. And I think, you know, and going through that experience too, I've kind of had to develop a heightened detector for the ways in which, you know, our most vulnerable, our most sick are often the people that end up falling prey to misinformation from the wellness industry or, or you know, being taken advantage of. But I've really learned the hard way to have to you know, approach my health as a journalist might to do my research, to get my second and third opinions, to speak to fellow patients, to really arm myself with as much information and, and research and due diligence as I can so that I can be the kind of advocate I need to be for myself and, and that all of us frankly do. So the takeaway for people listening is, might be, uh, and please correct me. Yeah, it's easy to get enchanted by whatever the latest wellness trend may be or some glossy article you see somewhere on social media or in a magazine. But do your research and 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 think carefully before you dive into something that you think might be miraculous or is being sold to you as such. And the last thing I'll just add to that is, you know, we live in, in a culture that's constantly striving for some perfect state of wellness, whether that's interior or some level of fitness, or it's the way that we look. 
And I know, you know, that for me, since emerging from cancer treatment to constantly be striving for that state of wellness is to live forever mired in dissatisfaction. And so I've had to release any expectations of of feeling well or unwell or of aiming for some, you know, mirage-like state of, of health. And instead, I've had to learn to accept myself as I am and, and to exist somewhere in that messy middle. Something we should all be striving to do. Before we go, it would be great if I can nudge you to remind us all again about the name of the book, where we can get it, uh, any other uh, places where we can get uh, content from you on on the interwebs, et cetera, et cetera. Can you just plug everything, please? I'll, I'll do my best. And I'll, I'll try not to feel presumptuous as I do it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so my memoir is called Between Two Kingdoms. It's available anywhere that books are sold. And I also founded a creative community called the Isolation Journals during the pandemic, where um, every week in my newsletter, I send out a different journaling prompt from an artist or writer or thought leader. And it's a free project. It's been really, really beautiful. And in some ways has, yeah, married all of my interests in, in the last decade of really turning to creative expression as uh, a form of, of healing and, and connection and, and self-examination. Uh, yeah, if you go to my website, sulaikajawad.com, I have everything there from the New York Times column to the books to the newsletter. Such a pleasure to meet you. Uh, congratulations on the book and thank you for coming on. Thanks so much, Dan. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thanks again to Suleika. The show is made by Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering by Ultraviolet Audio. As always, a hearty salute to my ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohen. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode with Dr. Dilip Jeste, who uh, is a scientist and medical doctor who uh, has studied wisdom and how to get the wisdom of old age right now. Fascinating discussion. We'll see you all on Wednesday for that. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? fold and now when you read them as an adult you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin we have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today 
Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.